Kilda, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 95 Temperance and Prohibition. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Alan. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we covered the entire history of the Dunedin-based beer brewery Spates, up until roughly the turn of the millennium. During the course of those episodes, we touched on a couple of different subjects that really deserve episodes in their own right. One of those topics was prohibition, which I had to cut a lot of content from because it wasn't super relevant to Spates themselves, but a lot of it is really interesting stuff. So we are going to retread some ground, but also give you more information and wider context as to what was going on, since in our first go, our lens was a bit more focused. So let's cast our minds back to those slightly earlier episodes where we talked about temperance societies. These popped up out of church groups in the 1820s and 30s to try and stop what they deemed to be the overconsumption of alcohol in New Zealand, which in turn they saw as the root of all of society's problems, like poverty, disease, neglect, and just general immorality. But although we discussed their motivations and how they tried to achieve their goal, we didn't really discuss whether this was actually a valid concern to begin with. Not so much the alcohol being the root of all evil thing, I think that's a much more complicated topic, but the broader question of, did New Zealand have a drinking problem? The short answer to that is yes. Heavy drinking in colonial New Zealand was very common, especially in male-dominated industries like the agriculture and maritime sectors. It was apparently so bad that some would say that the main cause of death in New Zealand was, quote, drink, drowning, and drowning while drunk, end quote. By 1847, one in every eight Aucklanders had been convicted for drunkenness. By 1870, nationally, it was 17 per 1,000 people. So that's 0.017% of the country had been convicted for drunkenness. Though this did gradually go down in the 20th century, until being drunk in public was no longer a crime. A lot of the problem was that the beverage of choice was often whiskey, locally made and designed to get you drunk fast. Additionally, this whiskey was being made by all sorts of different people with little to no oversight or regulation, meaning it was of very low quality and potentially quite dangerous even if consumed in moderation. The government imposed taxes and duties on spirits to stop people from drinking as much of it and also to slow the amount coming into the country. But all that achieved was that whiskey became a rich man's drink because they could afford it when the hotels increased prices in response. This also led to the parliament buildings having small rooms where drunk MPs could be locked in until they sobered up. Whiskey and other spirits were generally the main beverage that temperance groups were against early on. 
Funnily enough, some of the temperance groups on the goldfields weren't advocating for full abstinence from drink. They knew that this wasn't a realistic goal, since gold miners were probably some of the heaviest drinkers in the country. Instead, they would try to get them to just not drink spirits. This inadvertently encouraged them to drink beer, but much of the temperance movement saw this as a stepping stone to full abstinence. Overall, heavy drinking was definitely an issue. But the caveat to this was that, to be fair, agriculture and maritime were the main industries, and Aotearoa had a similar economy to pretty much every other British colony at the time, meaning Kiwis were hardly an exception to having a few too many. In particular, it was an issue in Australia and the United States, where prohibition also gained a lot of traction. Even in Britain herself, there was a lot of rampant drunkenness as people moved from the country to the cities for work due to the Industrial Revolution, resulting in people drinking more to get away from their bleak situation. Overall, I think New Zealand likely did have a problematic relationship with alcohol in the 19th century, but this was hardly unique and was seen in many different places, especially the British colonies. The first instance of prohibition in New Zealand came about in the middle of the rise of the temperance societies in 1835 in Horareke in Hokianga, Northland. This saw Lieutenant Thomas Macdonnell ban any booze in the settlement, searching any ships that arrived, and if any grog was found, he tipped it overboard. The next year, a public notice, the first to be printed in Aotearoa, invited people to a meeting to establish a temperance society. Four years after that, Teteriti or Waitangi was signed between the British Crown and over 500 Māori, which, if we skip over a shitload of stuff, ultimately led to William Hobson becoming the first governor of New Zealand. One of the first legal acts that Hobson ever put through, once he was finished ignoring the treaty and establishing British sovereignty over the islands, was to prohibit the distillation of spirits. It was also common to see Pākehā using alcohol to get Māori drunk before accepting their trade deals that heavily favoured Pākehā, which is kind of part of the reason why Waitangi was signed, because everyone sort of agreed that this was a pretty shitty practice, though for different reasons, but that's really getting quite off topic. Going back to Hobson, he also imposed restrictions on Māori buying alcohol in 1847, but this was unsuccessful. In 1851, justices were given the power to just cancel liquor licenses of any pubs that were getting out of hand, but that also didn't seem to have much of an effect. Throughout our history, although politicians did often say that the scourge of drunkenness did need to be curbed, they usually weren't fair about it. One of the first things passed in the General Assembly, New Zealand's early parliament, was to exclude the parliament buildings from the laws restricting the sale of booze. Jumping forward about four decades, as we know, it wouldn't be until the 1880s that temperance societies and the prohibition movement really picked up steam. This came in the form of the Licensing Act of 1881, which was the first big piece of legislation that restricted the sale of alcohol. 
To refresh your memory, this was the law that made it so liquor licenses could only be issued by committees which were elected by the public. This went okay for a few years, until 1886, when the temperance societies learned how to kind of game the system by ensuring only temperance supporters got elected, and thus they could revoke previous licenses and deny future ones, effectively enforcing prohibition in their area. We covered this in episode 89, and I glossed over quite a lot of stuff when I did that. Those scraps in Parliament, the near fracture of the ruling Liberal Party, and giving women the vote, had a lot going on, and even in these episodes we can't cover it all. But I want to take you a bit deeper into these events, to give you a better understanding of what was happening in Wellington, outside the viewpoint of Spates in Dunedin. In 1886, the New Zealand Alliance for the Suppression of the Liquor Traffic was formed. Headed by former Premier Sir William Fox, this was a national organisation that merged a bunch of local temperance groups together to protest licensing laws and distribute pamphlets. They also petitioned Parliament fairly often. The Alliance would go on to be a significant organisation in the Prohibition movement for the next 60 years, to the point where it, quote, took on the fervour of a moral crusade, end quote. They drew their support from many different groups, all of whom had slightly different reasons for getting involved. There were Protestants, who wanted to combat the sin of drunkenness, humanitarians who saw what alcohol was doing to Māori and the working-class Pākehā, as well as the women's groups who were having issues with the effects of alcohol in the home and family. One of these women's groups, and in fact the other major group in the entire movement, was the Women's Christian Temperance Union. This was established in 1885, and they campaigned strongly for the women's side of the issue, as they were seen as the ones most adversely affected by drinking, since they relied on their husbands for money, along with the obvious domestic abuse issues. This was the group that women's suffrage leader Kate Shepard was part of when she successfully campaigned to get women the vote, temperance being the major driver for that. The NZWCTU really deserves its own episode, because they are a fascinating and controversial organisation. But just to talk a little bit about their involvement in the Prohibition movement, the union defined temperance as, quote, moderation in all things healthful, abstinence in all things harmful, end quote. Each member paid an annual fee and would make the pledge, quote, I hereby solemnly promise, God helping me, to abstain from all intoxicating liquors, including wine, beer, and cider, and to employ all proper means to discourage the use of and traffic in the same. End quote. This was later amended to add, quote, the menace of narcotic poisons and drugs, end quote, this including tobacco. As you might expect, the NZWCTU did a lot of campaigning to try and get the prohibition vote over that 60% threshold, which was needed for local and later national prohibition. 
In the run-up to the first referendum in 1894, they pointed out that by giving the public three options, continuance, reduced licenses, and local prohibition, that the anti-alcohol vote would be split between the last two options. The union implies that this meant that prohibition in electorates couldn't be achieved as when you combine the votes for those two options, usually more people voted for that than continuance. However, I would counter that those who were voting for reduced licenses wanted some moderation rather than full prohibition. So I think it isn't true to say that those two options split the vote of people who were closely aligned in their views. They later claimed that the addition of state control to the national continuance and national prohibition options also split the vote. But again, in my opinion, these two options aren't aligned in their values, and state control never got a meaningful amount of votes anyway. This is also despite the fact that there was a period where state control wasn't an option, and it was just between continuance and prohibition, which still didn't see prohibition achieve the threshold. Before the option of national prohibition, the hope was to get each electorate dry one by one across multiple elections, achieving 12 dry electorates by 1908. This was obviously made easier in 1911 when the option of national prohibition was added to the regular referendums. The Union, the Alliance and other organisations continued to campaign for prohibition post-World War II, despite never getting more than 40% of the vote every three years. When Parliament were looking to remove the referendums in 1987, the movement protested, claiming that the triennial votes were a good indicator of public opinion, and they also still claimed that part of the issue was that the prohibition vote was split between two options, so instead the government should change it to be just a vote between continuance and prohibition. As we know, the government went ahead and got rid of the referendums. Although the union did support measures to regulate and limit the sale or consumption of alcohol, like setting up the Invercargill Licensing Trust, they did so with the ultimate goal of prohibition, constantly sending letters to newspapers, MPs and Parliament in general. In the same vein, the union was a main driver in the women's suffrage movement, but only as a means to an end. They thought that women would be more likely to vote for prohibition, or at least vote for prohibition MPs, and thus would get it over the line in the referendums, or those MPs would make legislative reform in Parliament. Quote, The enfranchisement of women will result in the moral uplifting of humanity. End quote. Although temperance was the main goal for the union at large, there was a good number of people that wanted to see women's suffrage just because that was a good and right thing to do. So don't get me wrong when I say they only saw it as a means to an end. Although that was the mindset of probably most of the higher-ups in the union, that wasn't the case for everyone. There were people that were just like, maybe we should give voting rights to 50% of the population. 
women who wanted suffrage for its own sake were generally part of Baptist, Congregationalist, and Methodist churches, as these were more into giving women equal status than some other churches at the time. Kate Shepard was made the superintendent of the Franchise and Legislation Department of the Union, whose job it was to lobby the government, which is how she kinda ended up being a major part of the suffrage campaign. Other women's related issues they have advocated for are women becoming justices of the peace, serving on juries, and women becoming cops, which was fully allowed in 1973. The youth arm of the union encouraged mothers to bring their infants and place them on the cradle roll, quote, promising to teach them the principles of total abstinence and purity, end quote. They would meet regularly for hymns, scripture readings, prayers, and all that sort of stuff, with meetings obviously increasing in complexity as the kids got older. Such as the more recent kids' publication, TK News, which was a NZWCTU publication aimed at kids 6 to 12 years old, with games and puzzles and the like. One of these issues had its main message around something I found rather surprising. Put your bets in now for what it might be. If you guessed fetal alcohol disorder, you guessed correctly. It dealt with the subject in quote-unquote plain language, but it was adapted to be child-appropriate according to the union. The youth arm of the union dwindled as other groups with similar goals became more popular, such as the organisation behind Students Against Drunk Driving, or SAD. Overall, the NZWCTU were set up to promote, quote, traditional Christian values centred on the family, end quote. And as such, the union, quote, expressed its concern at what it saw as a trend towards a more permissive society that cast aside those Christian values, end quote. That is to say, they pushed the government for various things, not just suffrage and prohibition. Some of these would be probably seen by wider society as mostly good, such as advocating for the age of consent to be raised from 13 to 16 in 1896, while other things would probably be seen by wider society as mostly bad, such as being against the legalization of homosexuality, which they called quote-unquote repugnant indulgence, and also being against abortion. Both of these issues being debated on the House floor in Parliament are within living memory. In some cases, support for prohibition came from the pro-choice women's groups, who wanted to vote for prohibition as a protest of the anti-abortion laws, something the union was not really that happy about. The union has also run soup kitchens and raised money for the poor during the 1880s Depression. They visited those in hospital to give them lollies, cake, and flowers, as well as helping the elderly do various day-to-day tasks. They have also provided accommodation for women who were quote-unquote rescued from prostitution and have helped female prisoners integrate back into wider society. The union also had a key role in helping to establish the first maternity hospital in Southland in Invercargill in 1917. What I'm saying is that these gals were a very mixed bag. 
It is also at this point that I would like to let you know that if you think some of these views are historical and not held by anyone anymore, this organisation, the New Zealand Women's Christian Temperance Union, although however small, still exists today, at least at time of recording. They, by their own admission, believe, quote, that alcohol is a poisonous and addictive drug and a source of misery, immorality, and evil in modern day New Zealand, end quote. That is from a modern publication on what the modern union believes. I don't want to harp on too much, I think I've made my opinion very clear, and I'm probably preaching to the choir here somewhat, but I do think it's important to get it out there and recognise that these organisations exist today. They hold these views today, and not just in America where shit's all going down there, people in New Zealand hold these views. Anyway, let's get off that, get back on topic. Let's go back to the Licensing Act of 1881. We know that the temperance movement's attempt to use the law to enforce their own ideology resulted in the committees having what the courts called, quote, an incurable bias, end quote. After this, the Alliance began to campaign the government to amend the law to allow electorates to vote directly if they wanted to become dry. This was quite thorny for Parliament, as it went across party lines, and was in particular an issue for the Liberal government and the Premier, Richard Seddon. He wasn't a fan of giving women the vote or giving into prohibitionist demands, since he actually used to work the goldfields and even owned a pub on the West Coast in his early life. However, another member of his party, Sir Robert Stout, was, ironically, a prohibitionist. This was a problem for Seddon, because Stout was a very strong member of the party, to the point where Stout was a contender for the leadership of the party and the nation when the former premier died. So, for Seddon to go up against Stout could fracture the party and threaten his position as premier. In the end, Seddon made the compromise with Stout to pass the Alcoholic Liquors Sale Control Act in 1893. This was the one that allowed electorates to vote for license reduction or to go locally dry, as long as 50% of the eligible population voted and 60% of those voted dry. This, in turn, led to the formation of no license leagues who were formed and run by the Alliance. From then on, the story pretty much stays the same as we mentioned in the Spates episodes. The prohibitionists and alcohol industry go toe-to-toe every three years to see if any electorate would go dry. Cluther in Otago was the first electorate to go dry in 1894, with Invercargill being the first city in 1905. By 1920, 12 of the 76 electorates had gone dry. When World War I kicked off, the temperance movement as a whole went quiet for a bit, with the vote for prohibition in the 1914 election dropping some percentage points. The referendums for licensing ceased for as long as the war was going on, but that didn't stop the Alliance, who campaigned to stop the sale of booze to soldiers and gave the soldiers themselves pamphlets about how terrible alcohol was. 
When King George V announced he had banned alcohol from the royal household due to the war, the alliance tried to convince soldiers that they should do the same for their leader. The alliance also presented a bunch of petitions to Parliament and the National Efficiency Board, who was made to ensure the country ran, well, efficiently during the war. These petitions recommended that they end liquor sales in the interest of their namesake. Although the government didn't do that, they did give the alliance something else in 1917. The six o'clock swill. Next time, we will talk more about the swill, how it influenced Kiwi culture, and round out our discussion on prohibition with the all-important question. Did it work? If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaotearoa.com. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the Te Reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, hairi tu atu, oki tu mai. See you next time. <laughs>